Hello and welcome to this 10th episode of the Sports Map Podcast, where we are talking all things sports medicine, physiotherapy, rehabilitation, and return to performance. I'm your host, Nick Kane. Today we have a fantastic guest joining us in Andrew Wallace. Andrew has been at the St Kilda Football Club as a physiotherapist there for over five years now. He's the lead clinician at Lifecare Malvern and he's also the director of the Hip and Groin Clinic who run some fantastic courses across Australia and abroad on hip and groin and also muscle injuries. Today we'll be chatting with Andrew around hip dysplasia. I had a fantastic chat with him and really enjoyed uh, our time spent. He has a wealth of knowledge in this area uh, and I think there's some really great key takeaways for clinicians in this chat. So I hope you guys really enjoy. Before we jump into today's chat, I just wanted to briefly mention our podcast sponsors in I Measure You and Valid Performance. Uh, this show wouldn't be possible without them. We appreciate their ongoing support and please, for more information, uh, head over to their websites and, and get in touch with them if you think their products might be of benefit to you or your athletes. And finally, just a reminder that Edna King is coming out to Australia in February 2020. Melbourne is sold out, unfortunately, for those in Victoria, yet we still have a few spots left in Sydney and also Perth. So for those keen to get on board, uh, they will sell out by the end of January. So head over to sportsmat.com.au for full information. Uh, but that's enough from me. Let's get into this chat with Andrew. All right, Andrew, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Nick. Very excited to be here. Yes, mate. It's uh, it's been a long time coming. We've wanted to get you on this podcast for a good 12, 18 months since our uh, athletic hip and groin pain symposium we had a while back. So, mate, finally we're here. Yeah, I think we sat down and uh, said we'd do that within a month or two. And uh, yeah, here we are 18 months later. But finally got there. We're uh, going to chat through a fantastic, uh, very interesting topic today in hip dysplasia. I guess, first of all, mate, what is hip dysplasia? Well, I think dysplasia in general is sort of described as an abnormal growth or development of a tissue or organ. But when we talk about the hip, we're talking about probably the acetabulum more than anything is what people refer to, acetabular dysplasia. But it's important to remember it can include the femur as well. So if we're talking about the acetabulum itself, we are really talking about how much coverage someone has. So do they have too little coverage or do they have too much? And when we talk about um, coverage of the acetabulum. We're normally talking about too little with regard to dysplasia. Um, but it's also about the orientation. Is it turned forward too much or antiverted or is it turned back too much and retroverted? But uh, another important point is that sloping up too much. So they slip around with the uh, ball in the socket. But we'll probably get to that as we go along, I would have thought. There's not too many people out there who, I guess, specialise, so to speak, in hip dysplasia. And uh, you're clearly someone who's really passionate in that area. How did you become so interested in dealing with this pathology or type of injury? I think like anyone who develops a special interest in an area, they've normally stuffed a few people up. So meaning that they didn't get the results they wanted to. Um, and I found that there was a cohort that that was in. I thought that was particularly its gender bias to young females. And I thought I was becoming a bit frustrated with potentially not having optimal outcomes after an arthroscopy, whether it was the scope or my rehab, I'm not sure. Um, but then also those that were conservatively managed, I don't think the outcomes were as good as they were in the males. So I sort of thought about it and thought, well, maybe we're going about it the wrong way. Maybe these aren't FAI, um, which is what most of them had been diagnosed with pre-scope or, or just to be managed conservatively. 
And was there a different way to look at it? And when we looked at them um, and we found that they were dysplastic, as we'll talk about how to find, um, I thought we were treating them almost 180 degrees the wrong way. So strengthening the wrong things, not focusing enough on posture or control of extension, and that, that's where I think we'll go in the next hour or so. When was that? When did that journey start for you? We're talking 10, 10, 15 years? Yeah, look, I've been really lucky, so I'd like to uh, credit Melbourne Orthopaedic Group in particular um, and David Young originally, so that's probably back in oh, 2003 or 2004. I used to actually sit in with surgery every Saturday with him for a couple of years for endless hours, but he sort of, uh, I guess, brought to the fore for me dysplasia and the possibility that this was around. And so since then, over the last 15 years or so, really been focusing on it. But I'd have to say that our program really has evolved, particularly over the last five or six years. I think you have some structure to a program that you think works. I'm talking about the rehab program here. Um, And I think we develop it and change it and modify it. And so... Uh, my team of Alicia Coonan and Mike O'Brien have played a big role in that as well as the surgeons that I acknowledge, which is Jip Balakuma, who I think is incredible in this space, uh, and John Barre, as well as David Young. So a lot of credit to those guys. But, yeah, it's probably taken 15, 16 years to develop the program we've got to today. Yeah, okay, very nice. Well, I look forward to um, tapping into where that program's at and, and exactly what you do. I guess first and foremost, say we, we get person walking to our clinic, okay, what sort of subjective things might we hear from them, what they say to us for us to think, oh, maybe this is dysplasia? I think there's some evidence for some of this and there's also, um, you know, having seen a large cohort of it, we put our own spin on it a bit. So the first thing to say is that our surgeons have a little rule of thumb that if you are a young female who walks in with hip pain, you have dysplasia until otherwise proven. If you're a young male who walks in with hip pain, you have FAI until otherwise proven. And I think that's a, a nice safeguard. It's a nice spot to start. Um, most of these people have pain that is representative in the, of the direction of instability they have. So if they are unstable anteriorly, they'll tend to have anterior pain. If they are unstable laterally, then meaning they're undercovered, um, not a gross instability like an ACL deficient knee. We're talking about more sliding or subluxation. So if they're undercovered laterally, they'll have more lateral pain. And if it's undercovered posteriorly, like a retroverted acetabulum or turned back, then they'll have more posterior symptoms. But I think in general terms, we see FAI in the young male in an anterior anteromedial location in the hip and in the young female who has a dysplasia, it's more anterior or anterolateral. Um, so if they do have posterior symptoms, it's anything that revolves around flexion. So it could be gym-based stuff like squatting or um, lunging and things like that, or it could be just simple life, incline walking, negotiating stairs. If it's more the anterior symptoms, then I think we have to be a bit careful with that because I think they do present with those similar tasks that we just mentioned. So squatting or lunging, crossing their legs, sitting, any of the flexion loading will give them pain. But this is where I think we've got to be really careful because it is an extension-based problem. And I think what happens, much like stretching your thumb back into extension at your interphalangeal joint, if you stretch that for long enough, the volar aspect of the thumb becomes sore. And then when you go to relieve it and let it go, it's much better. But if you bent it into flexion, then you would be very sore. And I think this is what happens. This is an extension-based problem 
They have undercarriage anteriorly. The hip goes into extension, stretches up the anterior structures, which we'll talk about later, and causes either a rim lesion or capsular problems or synovium. And the result of that is if I then take it the other way into flexion, it's sore. Now, this is the big issue because a lot of people don't ask questions pertaining to extension and they don't examine pertaining to extension. And so if you report or you act on someone reporting flexion-based symptoms and you only assess flexion, you're probably going to diagnose them with FAI. And that's probably the biggest thing that we've learned in this journey is make sure you ex- assess extension, particularly in a young female. Um, they, <laughs> the, the catch to this is, as we'll talk about an objective, they actually sometimes report a lack of extension. And I think that's just hypertonicity of the hip flexors and adductors trying to protect the joint, stopping them going into that. So don't get caught short with that one. They often report mechanical symptoms. So clicking, clunking, catching, that's a pretty common thing, um, whether that's the psoas tendon or rectus femoris flicking over the head of the femur or the iliopectinal eminence or one of those structures or whether it's actually a labral tear. You know, I'll leave that up to individuals to ascertain. But they also describe sort of a feeling of instability or weakness. I do think this is one of those where we should ask about past history because I think they often have been exposed to performing arts, whether that be dance or potentially martial arts, you know, that sort of thing, high end of range requirements and and very good control. It's not unusual actually for us to see a female walk in mid-20s, if I could give a small scenario, and only has problems, you know, at the age of 25, yet she's done ballet for, say, 20 years. And the question is, well, why would she have pain then? And my take is that she may have changed her profession. She's decided not to pursue that or she's finished study and has started, you know, an office-based job or she's decided to become a mum and doesn't have time to do it. There's all sorts of reasons. But the reality is she drops off that elite end strength and that's enough for her to start to get symptoms because she can't control end-of-range moves. So I think asking about that is really important, what their history was. And the other thing to probably ask about in the subjective is just making sure that you talk about the family because um, siblings, particularly sisters in this case, and mother or grandparents often, you know, there is a link there. So if uh, mum or dad, I think in the old days we used to say, oh, no, no, it doesn't matter, you know, dad had a hip replacement or mum had a hip replacement, but they just had arthritis. But that's the whole purpose of dysplasia. It leads to arthritis. As FAI, it leads to arthritis in the males. So we are trying to catch this early. This is all about hip preservation and hopefully we catch it early enough to to stop that. Um, And then the final thing with hip dysplasia is really talking about their birth history. So if they were born breech or they remember um, having double nappies um, or, or a brace at birth, that's obviously an indication that the, the paediatrician um, was worried back in that day, so that would give us a bit of an in. The other thing is being firstborn. If you're tighter in utero or you're a multiple birth and tighter in utero, it means your legs can't flap around basically. And so if the legs can't flap around, they can't mould the, the medial surface of the acetabulum and uh, you don't get a good deep socket, simple yeah. terms. Right. So I reckon that's, you know, it's a, a lot of info, but mm. it's uh, not a bad little summary of the subjective stuff we see. 
This episode of the Sports Map Podcast is sponsored by iMeasureU, which was recently acquired by Viacon. Used by leading biomechanic researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field, iMeasureU recently released IMU Step, which is a dual sensor lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. It's unlike GPS in IMU Step focuses on lower limb musculoskeletal load via two small synchronized high frequency tibial worn sensors which quantify three main things. The intensity of every step an athlete takes, precise left and right limb load asymmetry and cumulative tibial load. iMeasureU works in military, pro and college coaches and athletes from around the world including the Australian Institute of Sport, US Department of Defence and Harvard University. If you want to know more about how iMeasureU can help optimise return to play for your athletes, head over to their website iMeasureU.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at iMeasureU. You mentioned that they may present with those extension-based activities. Uh, is an example of that just sort of striding out walking or is there certain things they'll be doing throughout the day that they're like, oh, it's, it's, it's this? Yeah, no, I, I like that because there are some things that are uh, very obvious. So they often talk about walking with different partners. So if they walk with some old school friends and they walk with someone who's their height, they're quite comfortable with their stride length and probably their cadence and speed, all that sort of stuff, and they don't tend to have pain. But if they walk with another friend who potentially is six foot two and they take longer strides to try and keep up, they often get their pain, I think because they go into more pure hip extension rather than triple extension. So I think that's one of the things. I think prolonged standing will often give them pain um, and that's often reported as worse in high heels. I think we go into more of that sway back posture because certainly they do present with a sway. Um, for those who are Melbourne or Sydney-based, race days. So standing at the races all day often report that, you know, they get really sore in the frontal or the lateral aspect of the hip. Um, it's not unusual to report that hip extension. They, they, they've correctly been identified with lacking hip extension, but as we discussed, um, that's often hypotonus. So they've been told to stretch they then go and stretch and it makes them worse. So I think we've got to be a bit careful with how we do that. I think our rule of thumb with anything, shoulder, you know, hip, doesn't matter what it is, is never give someone more range if they can't control the range they already have. So I think that's where our take on probably doing the strength work first uh, and then seeing if that tethers the range out is probably not a bad, bad play as well. So, yeah, stay away from the hip flexor stretching um, until you can get a bit more strength. But then I think any of the uh, other extension-based things, so doing deadlifts. So I guess we probably see a lot of RDLs, we see a lot of deadlifts, we see a lot of that terminal extension. Trail leg on a lunge or a Bulgarian will often give these guys some pain. But then if they do it well and control it, there's no reason they shouldn't do a lot of these activities. It's about activity modification, I think. That's where we can use our S&C friends and, and teach some good technique and they're often all right. One, one dodgy one, though. I reckon a lot of the time people have been told they can't run with this. But if we think about the mechanics and you ask them, they're actually all right running. They don't take that large terminal extension stance that you often take with walking, particularly power walking and things. So 
I don't think we should always rule things out because we think it's going to be bad for them. But um, so they get a bit of a shock when you say, no, no, I'm happy for you to run if you don't go into too much extension and, you know, if you just want to have a jog and they come back and say, yeah, it was actually not too bad. So seems strange to tell someone they can run, not walk, but yeah, no, that's good one to watch. Brilliant tips there, mate. All right, so I guess moving on from that, we've, we've covered off on some of their key subjective components. We're going to have a look at them. What do we want to look at objectively and what do we often see in these type of patients? I think these are the ones that present objectively almost exclusively with some form of sway back. Um, oh, my take, again, a bit gender biased, but blokes are pretty uh, daggy through their thoracic area, tend to slump down and not look great at the end of a party. Um, but females tend to probably drop into a bit of sway, meaning they push their pelvis forward um, or laterally or a combination of both, somewhere in between, anterolaterally. I think over the journey... I've often had people report that, oh, yeah, I'm, I've got a lumbar lordosis and I've been told to posturally pelvic tilt. My take would be that they're probably in a sway back, meaning the whole pelvis has gone forward. They're already in maximum posterior tilt. It's not a lumbar lordosis. So I think be a bit careful of that. Um, we often see when they walk in that they have a bit of a Trendelenburg gait, but I think the other one to watch out for is the glute med gait. So I think they either hitch up or they drop down, probably both for the same reason. They're weak in their abductors and either drop down or they know they're weak in their abductors and try and hitch up. Um, poor control of the head of the femur, and this is where I don't think we've got great education on this. So you asked about the extension stuff. Um, I think we need to be good at palpating the head of the femur, and I'm, I'm well aware we can't get onto the head of the femur, but probably using the back of the great trochanter as a representation of that is not a bad idea. But think about how would you assess extension? And so we tend to do lumbar extension and feel a comparison between right and left posterior aspects of great trochanter and then probably single leg stance, so biasing right to left and seeing if there is increased translation. Often there is some bilateral stuff. We don't tend to see it as much in the male. It's probably more a female thing, but starting to think about how you'd assess that extension and often that goes with, say, a modified Thomas test where you find that they don't like going into extension because they are, it's a bit like the shoulder apprehension test. You know, they're going into an apprehensive position. But if you actually relocate and do a relocation test pressing through the front of the hip, you can actually get better range. And I think that gives you an answer of stability. Um, when we do look at the hip strength itself, I think any dynamic task, so single leg squat, I don't think you need to do a lot more than that. They display a loss of lateral pelvic stability and femoral rotational control. Um, sort of drop into that bad running position or walking position. And on isolated testing, they're often weak in the abductors and both internal and external rotators, um, but often the hip flexors as well because they've shut off. Um, I think this is, we touched on this before, but I think they're going to be really careful about the impingement test, so the fader test. And, and remember that there is no isolated labral test for the hip and that the fader test is not an FAI test. You know, the impingement test is not an impingement test for FAI. It just tells us that there's something probably going on intra-articularly. And, and I would suggest that periarticularly as well. I think there's other structures around there. So we said that probably stretching up anteriorly because of extension loading can lead to some hypertrophy or irritation of the anterior hip. I think if you then take it up into photo, they're going to be sore. So please don't. That's a take-home message for me every day of the week. Please don't hang your hat on that VEDA test. It goes into the kit bag and it comes out the other end after we've assessed everything. 
Um, one other little word of warning, I think in the females, you know, we're susceptible to some connective tissue disorders. So I think having some idea of assessing connective tissue just generally, you know, maybe a Baton's test or, you know, the nine-point test or at least bending their thumb back and one of their fingers and, and maybe their elbow into extension or knees into extension gives you a good idea that they may have some increased mobility. I think females are traditionally a bit more flexible than us blokes, unfortunately. So um, whether that's collagen or hormonal influence, but certainly we do see in this category some people who have a connective tissue disorder. Something like Ellis-Danlos is a good example. You know, we see probably one of them a week. Some of our specialists will test that genetically, but not going to change anything. So um, just be aware that it could be a global thing and that you're not just dealing with one isolated joint. Obviously, out of that objective, some of those key findings, you know, you're obviously finding their loss of pelvic control, but on your manual muscle testing, you're finding the external rotators and abductors are regularly down or is that what you're finding on most of these guys? Yeah, I think they are. Um, for me, again, it's probably something like chicken or egg. Um, I, we don't know whether that was one of the main causes or whether things shut off. You know, I think a lot of these people have reservations about some of the tasks they were doing. So they used to be a runner or they used to do ballet and, and they stopped doing that. And I think, you know, relatively they, they get a bit weaker than potentially what, you know, their optimal is. Um, but I also think pain inhibits that. I, I certainly think the hip flexors are pain inhibited. Um, and if they are, you know, driving out to the side with the head of the femur or sliding, then I think potentially those abductors. I think we forget how close some of that anatomy is. You know, the the void at the front of the hip in the capsule, you know, is is really filled with psoas, but RecFem sits right there as well and inserts into just above the labrum on the, the outside of the acetabulum. So... They are intimately involved and, you know, glute, mead and men are pretty close laterally. So I think we need to remember that, that we do have weakness, but I think, you know, my take is we've got to be very careful with weakness. I think to do an isolated test, and 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 I say this to all my patients, we, we use a handheld dynamometer and we've got some figures we like to, to have. For those who are listening, I don't mind sharing, but we, we say 150 newtons for a male with abduction and adduction and 135 for females, abduction and adduction. For rotation, so in prone, IR and ER, we like about 135 for the male and about 120 for the female. So that gives you in, in a neutral position. But I think with any handheld dynamometry or just a handheld test, if it's resisted static, remember that that's you know, just a static test. And some people test incredibly strongly on your bed and then you look at them do a dynamic task like a single leg squat and they're horrendous. Conversely, some people are horrendous on their strength test but unbelievable at performing, you know, because they're a ballerina and they do these amazing tasks. So I think we can't hang our hat on that. The other thing I'd just say about the handheld dynamometry is that it tests the muscle in one plane. So adductors is a good example. I think they're named anatomically. You expect them to pull into adduction, but we know their function is in the sagittal plane to control extension, initiate flexion. We know that it's a rotator, both internal and external, depending on what part of the adductor. So I think we need to be careful assuming that someone is weak in, say, an adductor if they're just weak on one test. And just to clarify on that testing, is that um, with your handheld, you're doing make isometric testing? And do you do that in sideline? We do make and we do it in supine. 
So um, for those who can't work out what we're talking about, we would normally be a bit cautious about a sheet on the bed. So if you can take the sheet off, and particularly if you've got a male, it's easy to take the shirt off as well. So they stick to the bed and get a bit more control. Um, and then holding onto the side of the bed, so they're allowed to hold onto the side. Other leg bent to 90 degrees, so sort of half crook lying, and then either adducting or abducting. Oh, look, it's just my choice. I get a bit nervous about the old brake test, um, probably coming from footy and testing before they go out to run out for a training session. I get a bit nervous. I'm going to tear something. Um, so I prefer the make. Um, it gives me a figure. As I said, it's just something for comparison, I think, if you're consistent with that. Um, and then on their tummy, still sheet off the bed if you can, um, and prone. So 90 degrees, hip in neutral, 90 degrees knee bend, and then just pushing out obviously for internal rotation and then pushing in for external rotation function. The only thing about those tests, of course, is you've just got to be accepting that if someone has no internal rotation, heaps of external, understand that you're only testing it in a very inner range position for internal rotation. So I'm a bit cautious about that. Like I think sometimes I do two figures with the rotation where I'll take them to their mid-range of IRER and it gives me a representation. So if someone was significantly antiverted and had heaps of internal and they only have 10 degrees of external, it's pretty unfair to test them in neutral, well, in anatomical neutral, because uh, I think you're giving them an unfair disadvantage. You were talking about pain before. What, what do you think in your mind are the structures that are actually causing these symptoms? I think the most likely scenario is at the onset of their symptoms, so very early days, I think we're probably just dealing with some sort of soft tissue. I think probably initially intra or periarticular, so synovium, capsule, labrum. Um, and I think there's a very good chance that we have a labral tear. You know, as Josh Heary's work shown, probably the symptomatic and non-symptomatic figures are very similar <laughs> as far as labral tears go. So we've got to be a bit careful about saying that that is the cause of the pain. But I think all of those structures are certainly pain sensitive and can give us a problem. The issue is down the line, what gives us the pain? For me, if someone's had pain for a year or two, I think there's a good argument, particularly if they have night pain, that they're probably getting some chondral surface issues. Now, obviously, chondral tissue is neural, but it suggests that we're probably getting some bone marrow edema or a subchondral pathology there, which is always a bit of a concern. So no night pain, I reckon, is good pain. Uh, night pain, not so flash for us. And then the one that we've really focused on a bit more recently is probably the dynamic stabilizers. So just understanding that close link with iliosis and rec femurs it crosses over the front and then the lateral structures I discussed before, glute min and glute med, and I think they are potentially pain-generating structures. It's probably important to remember that, you know, when we talk about dysplasia or as we call it DDH or developmental dysplasia, remember that probably used to be called CDH or congenital dislocating hip or that's a long time ago when I went through uni. But um, for those who are now referring to it, go DDH. The biomechanical faults with that, and this is important for us who are treating it on a biomechanical level, is that you don't have great coverage. The acetabulum is not covering the head of the femur as it should. And effectively what that does is it relatively lateralizes the centre of the head. So it means your abductor mechanism is much tighter to the centre. It's not working. It doesn't have a lever arm. So this may actually answer, you know, some questions that people have when they do strength work 
and they think, gee, you know, this patient, we all have these patients, don't we? They're, they're unbelievable in their application. They do everything to the letter of the law, perfect execution, perfect sets, don't miss a day, do everything you ask of them and you retest them and you're flat as a tack. They're, they're the same or sometimes weaker and you think, what, why? And, and I wonder sometimes whether they just can't get stronger. You know, they have that, you know, if we go back to all the kinesiology days, but they just don't have a lever arm that can function particularly well even with a strong um, abductor mechanism. So I think we've got to be a bit cautious of that and, and be a bit suspicious if you think you've got a great patient and they're not getting stronger. Think biomechanically, maybe. And then, of course, um, the other part of the, the DDH is that they have a smaller contact area, you know, between the dysplastic acetabulum and the head of the femur. So there's a more concentrated force on that lateral rim and we know that the, the labrum in the dysplastic hip takes somewhere in the, I think I'm right in saying, four to six times, you know, what it normally would have to take in load. It's not going to last. It's going to break down at some stage. So I think, uh, you know, the, the other factor about that DDH is that we're probably not always talking only about the uh, acetabulum because I think uh, it's it's very strongly supported in the literature that often the DDH, so the acetabular component, is is accompanied by some sort of femoral problem, normally something like femoral antiversion in combination with, uh, you know, a coxa valgum. So if I have an antiverted hip and I also have a valgus hip, my abductor mechanism is going to be challenged even more because I just reduced my lever arm further. So it's important. So, you know, I think I think we've got to be a bit aware of this sort of stuff and it's probably beyond the scope of this, but we always, you know, like to challenge people and make them start to think outside the box. I would, my final comment on that sort of the extras sort of side of it is just be aware that uh, OA that is linked to um, dysplasia is not just linked to how much coverage there is. So it's not about how much coverage there is, it's more, more intimately related to how much subluxation. So when we look at the radiology side of things, it's important to see if there's an incline in the, the, the roof, the socket. So is it inclined and allows shearing? Because cartilage, we know this from knees and ACL damage and whatever, cartilage is terrific at taking impact force. It's terrible at taking shear force. You know, and once we lose that cartilage or wear it away, we're in big trouble. Well, it actually leads me on to uh, our next question. And I guess when it comes to imaging, what type of imaging in this patient would we opt for? When would we go for that? And uh, what findings do we think are really important? I think there's been some great work out, and I'll, I'll reference Josh Heary again, but um, MRIs, that terrific for a lot of what we look at, but, gee, they cause some dramas, don't they? Like we look at how many people have a labral tear, as we discussed before, how many people have chondral pathology and, uh, you know, we can have asymptomatics coming through the door that never had a hip problem and you scan them for something else and they show up with a labral tear and some chondral wear and tear and, you know, they don't need to hear that. There's, a, there's plenty of people functioning with all that sort of stuff. So the surgeons we deal with and, and our rule of thumb is always X-ray first. I think the key thing about the x-ray is it tells us about your morphology or your architecture and that's what we're after because the rest, the labral tears, the chondral wear and tear, that's probably the sequelae. We need to work out what the cause is. So a plain AP x-ray and it needs to be AP pelvis, I'm talking. It needs to be in standing if you can because it's probably more representative of their functional tasks. 
um, and a, a cross, some sort of cross table view. So we would use the standing false profile view if we're talking about particularly here dysplasia. Use a you know a super and a done view or some sort of cross table view if you're talking about FAI. But in this case, if there's two things, it's a standing AP pelvis, so weight bearing, and it's a, a false profile. So things you'd be looking for there is how much coverage is there laterally? So are they covered on the outside of the acetabulum or are they potentially going to give a bit there? And we use a thing called a, a lateral centre edge angle of Weiberg. The figure, you know, it's hard to describe obviously in a podcast, but we draw a line straight through the centre of the head of the femur and vertical and then out to the edge of the, the socket basically and you, you should be somewhere around 20 to 25 to 30 degrees. If it's a, if it's less than that, then we get a bit worried they're not covered. And we have the same sort of thing for the anterior wall. It's exactly the same figures, but it's done on the posterior wall. Sorry, on the um, false profile view. But we do have other you know, elements that we can look at. We can look at a thing called an anterior um, wall index, and really the anterior part of the the socket needs to cover about 30% of the head of the femur and then 30% of the radius, and then the posterior wall needs to pretty much cross halfway through the head of the femur. They're two, two good figures to give us anterior and posterior coverage. But the important ones for me are, you know, what's their tonus angle? And that's that angle of inclination we spoke about or the, the subluxation angle. We're basically, in simple terms, easy on a podcast, we want a horizontal roof. We need it to be zero to 10 degrees. If it's any more than 10 degrees, they're going to slip out. Um, and if they slip out, then you can use a thing called Shenton's line to work out have they actually slipped out, and that's that's something you can look up online. But it's the superior border of the obturator foramen should roll straight into the inframedial border of the neck of the femur. Um, and if it's slipped out, it's either they've either fractured their neck of femur, which you're hoping these guys haven't, or they've got dysplasia. So I think it's important that we we recognise those. Most of those have got good validity and reliability. The, the thing that we are probably a little more cautious of is those that have what we call acetabular retroversion. So the socket is turned back a bit. We see this probably in the male. So this is a female dominant sort of cohort. But in the males, one in six, I should say in the dysplasia, one in six are acetabular retroversion. And that's where the males probably have more of the link to this. Um, the reason I say be a bit cautious is because we look at three signs here. We look at a positive crossover sign, which you know, a lot of people recognise. Your anterior wall of your acetabulum should not cross over your posterior wall. If it does, it's called a crossover sign. The ischial spine sign, you should not be able to, on an AP pelvis, weight-bearing, see the ischial spine. If you can, it's called an ischial spine sign. And the posterior wall, as I alluded to, should be through the centre of the head of the femur. If it's medial to that, then it's too far in. If it's got those other two signs, then the socket is turned backwards. Now, the problem with the socket being turned backwards is that it has a prominent anterior wall and an undercovered posterior wall. If it's prominent anteriorly, you'll probably pinch at the front, so you'll set yourself up one of the forms of FAI, but you're undercovered at the back, so you often slip out. And the other ones that we alluded to in the subject, if when you asked of the other bloke who goes to the gym and he does a squat and he says, I feel really silly saying this to you, but when I go past 90 degrees, I feel this spasm in my butt. Like it's almost like my hip's going to pop out the back. And I think he's not far off right. Now he's probably not going to pop out the back, but he pinches at the front, levers out the back. I think we need to be careful of those. 
I don't think it's just he's getting some butt pain. I think he actually could have some spasm there. So I think we're entitled to ask a few more questions there and look at range and even examine the patient doing the squat or the lunge or whatever it may be. Now, the reason I say be careful about those signs is because they are very, very patient-directed, as in what position are they positioned in when they're having an X-ray. So there's so much variability there. So that's why there is no reliability for those signs. So word of warning with that. I think we're moving towards 3D MRI, which is going to be amazing because post-acquisition, we can then reorientate the MRI to be a, a set pelvic position and then we'll be able to you know, make decisions on that. Um, so if someone has some rotation when they have the MRI, you can counter that after, after acquisition. The only thing about that is the counter to that is, is that representative of what their functional position is because maybe they are rotated when they do things. Anyway, I don't know if we're ever going to have a perfect solution. Very hard to discuss radiology on here, but um, I think it's, it's worth, if people have a special interest in it, having a bit more of a read about it because we do need to know about it. It gives you that added bonus once you've got your subjective data, got your objective data and you need to have some idea of the radiology. Veld Performance are doing some fantastic things to improve human measurement through the development of their laboratory-grade technology built for everyday use in the field. Their equipment, that includes the likes of the Nordboard, groin bar, Forstex and human track, provide objective measurements that are accessible to practitioners and athletes for whenever and wherever they need it. Veld Performance athlete testing systems are trusted by over 500 of the world's most elite sporting teams, clinicians, universities and defence departments. Born out of research here in Australia at the Queensland University of Technology in 2015, Veil Performance has a fantastic team of sports scientists, researchers, clinicians, designers, developers and engineers, all who are dedicated to improving human measurement. Learn more about Veil Performance at veilperformance.com. We've got our uh, radiology findings. Uh, we've moved past our subjective and objective. When and why would we refer elsewhere and if we were going to refer for an opinion on certain matters where would we go for that and I guess moving on from that what treatment options are available for these type of patients outside of conservative management. Referral is an interesting one I absolutely refer um, couldn't speak more highly of doing so but the problem is it's such a refined area of knowledge that I think you need to really target you know, the people you use, I obviously use Jip Balakuma, as you know, or John Burrow, those guys who have a good idea of this sort of stuff. I think we don't want a situation like we set up before where you send someone and they have a fader test and report flexion symptoms and end up having FAI surgery. So, And that's not a knock on anyone. It's just the reality of what we see. So I think if you are going to target someone, please make sure that they do have dysplasia as one of their key knowledge bases um, or an awareness of it. Um, I word it to patients like this. I say that um, I want you to, to get an opinion from a surgeon. I don't necessarily think you are going to have surgery or not everyone requires it. But if you were buying a secondhand car, you would get a mate as a mechanic to check it to make sure that it was okay. You'd ring the police and make sure it wasn't stolen and you would ring the rego board and make sure it's registered. Ultimately, you don't have to purchase that vehicle, but you're making a much more informed decision if you decide to go ahead with that purchase. 
and I think that's a good way for patients to look at things. They're information gathering. We, we give them what we hope is the best conservative management uh, and that'll include all the things we'll talk about in a minute um, and hopefully giving some good advice and waking them up to this. But I think they're absolutely entitled to get an opinion from one of the surgeons um, or a sports physician if you feel that there's one who is um, well-trained. Obviously, the sports physicians are outstanding with the musculoskeletal medicine these days. So I think that that's a real advantage. Um, I, I don't tend to ask people to bias one person if you're referring. I think it's important we develop relationships with our own people and, and have an understanding. But I think we should promote information gathering. So, look, the the options outside conservative, I think we've got to be a bit careful with. Um, studies are now reasonably strong on the fact that if you have an arthroscopy, it may not be a great outcome. We know that in FAI, from Joe Kemp's work with regard to chondropathy, that the outcome may not be what we used to think it was. Um, we know now with DDH that you've got to be fairly careful. Probably the reason is that you destabilise the joint a bit. Um, I think to some people they think an arthroscopy is just two holes, but you have a cut that joins that up, some sort of incision, whether it be a T incision or, or an incision straight across between the portals to allow people to do their work. So the capsule is compromised and intra-articular pressure is compromised. And if they are already slippery, as in the joint is slippery, I think you're asking for a bit of trouble. Now, there are some that go into further procedures that do probably need a stabilisation of the labrum. That's a different kettle of fish, but as long as you've got a long-term goal. Um, I think if they don't have an osseous morphological issue, so they have an atraumatic instability, it's more related to, say, connective tissue or something along those lines, I think a thermal or a, you know, a suture capsulography plus or minus application has been indicated as reasonably warranted, um, but, you know, they're a separate group. Um, we're probably talking today more about those that are morphologically challenged or architecturally challenged. Um, I think ultimately if it is a skeletally mature person um, of the right age, so the studies show under 40, um, ideally under 30, with good congruency of a joint and no chondropathy, they're probably a candidate for a PAO or a periacetabular osteotomy. Um, what that is, it sounds really horrendous, but what it is is basically cutting the acetabulum out and turning it so they can reorientate it so we get better coverage wherever they're undercovered. So maybe posteriorly, but more likely probably laterally or anteriorly. Put it in a good position. The advantage to that is it increases the coverage of the head of the femur, so obviously a super important point. You can nullify that subluxation issue. So because the roof will now be more horizontal, we get less shear stress through there. It medializes the hip joint because it covers more laterally, so that helps the abductor mechanism, which is fantastic in these people, and it stops that rim loading we discussed earlier where the labrum has to bear four to six times more than it should. So I think that that is a, a really nice operation um, as an option at least. With good management, what's the sort of prognosis from those operations and also you know, what sort of timeframes are we looking at? I think um, well, we'll probably talk more about the PAO because I'd probably not like someone to have a scope. Yep. 
I think we know with the scopes and the FAI that we're looking pretty much at a 20-week return to sport program and we're pretty strict on that and obviously more than happy at any stage to discuss that. But if we're talking about the PAO, ironically, it's 20 weeks as well. So they, they're on crutches for six weeks and then one crutch for another two and that's really to protect bone healing and, uh, and not compromise that. But after that, they're away. So they do a similar program to some of the stuff we're going to discuss in the next half an hour or so. And then they get back to running at sort of 15, 16 weeks and graduate into their sports. So um, they're often young athletic females who don't weigh a lot anyway um, because they were dancers or runners. So we're in a really beneficial sort of cohort there. So I guess that's helpful to know that uh, maybe a patient's rehab from a PO other than, I guess, some time restrictions based from the surgeon's instructions will be not too dissimilar to our rehabilitation program that we're going to sort of talk about now? Exactly the same, really. Yep, they just start a whisker later. Uh, physios, uh, bread and butter, so to speak, when it comes to conservative management rehabilitation for this type of patient, where are we starting um, and what are some of our sort of key target areas in that early phase? I reckon education, number one. Like I think um, we play a big role in that. Um, I certainly, you know, have learnt a lot from some amazing physios over the journey and, you know, what I always think with those people is they educate the patient really well and they give a prognosis and timeframes that are very, very accurate. Like and it's, um, it's really comforting for the patient. I think one of the things I'd point out straight away is when we talk about something aesthetic in the gym, so let's say we're talking about a young bloke because young blokes are young blokes and we give him the best chest program in the world and you send him away to go to the gym and you say, I'll see you in two weeks. He says, what? What do you mean? I say, well, you know, you got your program, you'll be all right in two weeks. He's like, oh, I haven't made any change. And you say, well, how long is it going to take you? And he'll say, I don't know, six to 12 months to build a chest. I say, yeah, you're right. But you give the same young bloke something for his hip and he comes back two weeks saying, two weeks later saying, I'm no better. So, well, yeah, it's the same thing. You need to understand and the patients then need to understand that strength programs are going to take some time. So I think that's that's really important. So, yes, we'll educate them about the pathology and we'll educate them about all sorts of other things, activity modification and um, making sure they avoid painful tasks so they don't pain sensitise. But I think giving them an expectation of what the outcome may be. You may never be 100%. You might have to modify some things, but importantly, your strength program is going to take a long time is a really key element to what we do, you know, massively. Um, with regard to the specificity of the exercises, I, you know, I can't harp on enough about avoiding pain-sensitive tasks. So I think we discussed this a little bit before, but not doing deadlifts or RDLs to the end of range. You know, if they're on their back and doing bridging, think about it. Maybe you load it up to 100 kilos so they can't get to end of range. They can still work their glutes. They love it when you tell them they can lift more weight, but it's restricting their range. So be sensible about the end of range tasks. So the others that we mentioned earlier, I think lunge, trail leg, Bulgarians, trail leg, lunge walking, those sort of things be a bit careful of. And particularly running, if you are doing striding, 
um, so interval work, or you're doing uphill running, we know that trail leg cops it a bit. So I think they can run within their limitations and I'll sort of go backwards to come forward because we'll talk about triple extension at the end of this. But I think in the initial phase, please restrict their hip extension. Now, what do we do? Well, we sort of have, we look at things um, in a couple of stages and, and I think we allow about a month per stage because in my opinion, they need four weeks to get, I guess, a good control of the exercise they're doing and we use the term earn the right to move on. So if they come in and they don't exhibit where, what we want them to, as in execution of the task, the exercise and the strength gains, we don't progress them because I think if you ask someone to do a task that they are not equipped to do, they will fall. Yeah, they just won't get there. So first thing we do is sway correction. So we make them aware that you are sitting in the front of your hips and probably weight bearing through the forefoot and we get them to correct the pelvis back. Obviously very hard in a podcast to say that, but shearing the pelvis straight back, basically in between your shoulders and your feet so that you get alignment between your lateral malleolus your grade trochanter and your middle of your acromion, so they're nice and straight. Most of the time, their grade trochanter is way in front of the other two. And we progress that to standing on one leg. So they start with two legs and then they progress to one leg where they transition across. One of my big bugbears, Nick, is people saying, oh, you've got bad balance. Most of the time, I think it's weight transfer. So we should be getting our centre of gravity over our base of support. When we're standing on one leg, you would like to see that if someone's wearing a shirt or someone's wearing a zip-up jacket, that the zip or the buttons are over the second toe. If they're not there, pelvis level, shoulders level, they haven't gone far enough. And if, they're, if their centre of gravity is inside their base of support, they'll cock their body over to compensate. That's a bad starting position. Like it's non-functional and they don't do very well. As soon as you start to increase the complexity of the task, they fail. So sway double leg to start with and then progress it to, to single leg. And then with the sway, I think it's really important that we teach them to walk again. Sounds so stupid, but they've got to learn to step. So those who are S&C background or fairly savvy with this will understand, but we talk about triple extension versus hip extension. So if I'm stepping forward... If I'm a runner, for example, we're taught to lean on or run on the angle we're going to fall. So if you lean forward, if you imagine standing upright and you lean forward, on the angle you're going to fall should be the angle that you are running on. It minimises your braking force, it increases your propulsive force and you use momentum to move forward. We see so many people who are standing upright with this dysplasia and trying to get propulsion by just pushing the foot back and going to isolated hip extension. You don't need to. Lean forward, neutral hip, hip knee extension, ankle plantar flexion, get into triple extension. If you don't know what triple extension is, I'd really advise that you have a little look on YouTube and get a bit of an idea because you'll understand the difference between isolated hip extension and the triple extension. We describe, describe it to patients, again, one of my stupid analogies, but... Isolated hip extension puts the glute into a, an insufficient position, as we know. The actinomycin is crossed over, it can't contract. So to us that is like firing a cannon out of a rowboat that's on water. The boat will go backwards and the cannonball will just drop in the water versus nice triple extension where the hip is in a neutral position and you're getting propulsive force is like firing a cannon off land. 
So cannon stays stable, ball goes as far as a cannonball goes, however that is. So I think training them to step by leaning forward, maintaining the neutral posture, but leaning forward onto the forefoot and landing on the opposite heel is a really good way to do that. And then getting some thoracic extension as well. So we tested the standing on one leg and we tested lumbar extension or thoracic extension, as we said, when we did the objective. I think it's important if you are dealing with a tennis player, so for example, serving or a lifter in the gym, that they learn to get thoracic extension without too much hip extension. So we just spoke about having plantar flexion and knee extension and leaning forward. So we talk about the bottom up, but you've got to think about the top down as well. If she's a goalkeeper and she's holding a position as a defensive player, she needs to be able to hold thoracic extension without just getting hip extension. So super important that we train that. So oh, look, I'm I'm a massive push for this sway correction because I think that end of range position is what compromises your connective tissue, which includes your dynamic stabilizers and whatever, but super, super important. So the other things that we do, look at lateral pelvic stability, so your abductors, and we, we start with simple side-lying stuff. I really like the work of Ali Grimaldi, so that's sort of drawing the ball into the socket to get glute min working and then lifting. We only lift to about 30 centimetres and we try and keep perfect alignment. You know, we try and not let them posteriorly rotate or let the leg drift forward to bias TFL or anteriorly rotate the pelvis and let the leg go back and bias upper glute max. Try and get them to work glute min and then glute med, but only lifting to 30 centimetres because I think it's a functional range. There's only a small cohort that are going to need much more than that. Um, and then at the same time, internal rotators, we just start that on, on their tummy and do prone rotation. I'm not a fan of 90-90 rotation and the reason, I always have a reason for what I say, but the reason is that once we get past 45 degrees of flexion, your external rotators become abductors. Um, so they cross you know, into the, the dark side. So I think if you're trying to work external rotators, you've got to do it in neutral. Um, and then the progression of both of those is you need to go to weight bearing. So we're talking here about a situation where someone is doing an open chain activity. So their body's still and their legs moving and reality of sport is our legs stay still and our body tends to move around it if we cut and turn if we're a netballer or a basketballer. So I think that we need to prepare them for that pivoting and change of direction. So we do standing then for both our next two exercises. For the abductors, we like to do drop downs. They're like a hip hitch. But I hate the term hip hitch because to me, you are starting on the ground and lifting your hip up into abduction. The reality is if you walked like that or you ran like that, you'd be very unproductive. The abductors should be almost isometric in that activity to stop the contralateral side dropping down. So we drop the pelvis down off a step and then bring it back up. And likewise, so we think of that as countering vertical ground reaction force when you land. For the external rotators, we think of that when we land as countering horizontal ground reaction force. The, the foot that lands will break and your pelvis will spin forward. So we need to do some external rotation and we use, you know, some TheraBand. You know, we can talk about the specificity later if you like, but facing an anchored cord and we turn the pelvis and the body away from that standing on one leg and think that works. But again, my criticism of our own exercises is they are still uniplanar. So they're now closed chain, so we're getting closer, 
but they're uniplanar and, and sport requires multiplanar tasks, sagittal, coronal, transverse plane. So we then go to some windmills, which is like going into a drinking bird and, and then rotating the pelvis down and up or some combined twisties where you come down and through and it's, it's really hard to describe it. But I think, uh, you know, just because we have some exercise that work doesn't mean that the listeners can't design their own. It's probably more. The crux of that is start open chain and uniplanar, go to closed chain uniplanar, but please think multiplanar as the end game because otherwise I don't think we're preparing people to return to sport. And then the final thing is I think we can't neglect the hip internal rotators and the hip flexors. So they tend to be really quite weak in this population. So I think starting with simple, you know, prone internal rotation is fine, you know, the TheraBand and, and doing some standing hip flexion. But eventually I think you need to use probably a power band for the hip flexion, um, get it anchored behind them and pull through. I don't think a TheraBand cuts it. Um, and then hip internal rotation, you need to be doing standing, what we call reverse twisties, where you're facing away from the anchored band and rotating in. Because if you think about running, think about the lead leg, if you can imagine it as a listener. So the lead leg lands, but our pelvis is rotated open at that stage. We need to use the, the lead leg internal rotators to bring the pelvis back to neutral and then the contralateral hip flexors to drive the other side of the hip through. So we need to, we describe the other exercises, the ones we just described before, as injury prevention. We describe these as performance enhancement exercises. So I think, think about what can you do that is going to improve someone's performance or propel them forward. And I think these two are really important. The other thing about that, of course, is that they both of these probably provide some sort of buttress. So I know Lynn Watson talks about the anterior deltoid providing a buttress in those that are un anteriorly unstable in shoulders. We think that potentially this provides with the rec femur and psoas provides some sort of anterior buttress to the head of the femur translating forward. So I think it's a really nice thing to bring in. Timing's everything. Um, the reason I don't bring it in until about the third month is because I've stuffed too many up. We tend to find that these are the two really provocative ones. So I think they need to get a level of skill before they can go to this. And then once they've nailed that, we said it earlier, they need to go to triple extension. So we will go from a triple extension position on the ground to stepping up onto a box and really doing some ballistic work or even a lunge position and stepping up onto a box. So just to give the listeners some idea, boxes in front of you, you are in a lunge position on the ground behind the box and then your, say, let's say your left leg is your lead leg, got 90 degrees at your ankle, 90 degrees at your knee, 90 degrees at your hip and then your trail leg, 90 degrees at the knee and you're on your toes on the back leg. And you push from that position, so left leg is forward, push from that position to drive up onto a box with the right leg, your left leg is the one that ends up in extension. So it's ankle plantar flexion, knee extension, hip extension, body inclined forward. So everything we spoke about with the stepping, but now you're getting power into it because you need speed to do sport. The mistake people make they get the ankle plantar flexion, they get the knee in the right position, but their body's upright. They're not inclined forward. So what does that represent? Well, it's still isolated hip extension. And once you train that, they start to really respond well to that. 
allows them to go into agility drills and all that other stuff down the line. You took us through the early phase with the education, activity modification, and then we going through exercise phases there, abductions, uh, hip drop downs and, and twisties. What sort of sets and reps are we looking at here and uh, what's our sort of key target areas if, if there is a sort of a marker we want the, to get them to? Yeah, I'd, I'd probably reference Lynn Watson again here because um, she said when I was very much her uh, slave when I was doing a few shoulders with her that patients won't do more than two or three exercises. And I think that's a really good key take-home message um, for younger physios. You know, we all probably went through the stage where we gave them two A4 sheets of paper thinking they're going to love me because I've got all these great exercises for them. They hate you. Absolutely hate you. So they want two or three things they can do. So we pretty much have a rule of thumb of three exercises and we try and stick to two minutes. So there are some things like the sway, which are time-based, but doing one rep of of two minutes is not going to cut it because I think there's method in the correction and I think there's method in the hold because that is really a motor skill. So we would say, I want you to do two minutes, but I don't care what denominations. Four lots of 30 seconds or six lots of 20 seconds are a really good starting point, I reckon. And if they're doing two legs, that's what they do. When they go to one, still the same. They get rid of that and they do two minutes in whatever denominations. Um, with regard to those that are more strength, then I think we're looking at probably two sets of 15 repetitions. Um, my one little take-home message for some people, though, is I think sometimes when we're talking about someone doing a set of 15, we're better to describe it, sounds silly, but describe it as 15 sets of one repetition. And the reason I say that is I think they are more likely to set themselves up with a good weight transfer, concentrate on the turn, come back, make sure they're in a good position and then return again. And you find they don't lose their balance. Whereas if it's a young bloke who's just trying to get through it doing 15 reps, he often turns, 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 gets to the fourth or fifth and falls over. And it's not his balance. It's the fact he's lost that weight transfer. So I think given that we are trying to get people in a really good position and particularly for those that have a dysplastic hip that will slide out the front, one of the good add-on points that I often say when they're doing twisties or drop-downs is imagine once you've corrected your sway that you have a sharp spike in the front of your hip and you're not allowed to push forward into that spike because it, it really rams home the importance of keeping the head centred in the acetabulum rather than I have this vision, and I might be wrong about it, but I have this vision that if the head's sliding forward and then you rotate on it, surely you're irritating the labrum or anterior structures. So I think that's my little tip there is two sets of 15. It's about two minutes, but I, I would be very cautious about making sure that they are keeping good postural control with that thought of 15 sets of one rep. And then my only other warning is I find that the hip flexion strengthening and the hip internal rotation strengthening, and this comes through us making the mistakes, is we need to probably start with two sets of five repetitions. Uh, add one every time, two sets of six, two sets of seven, two sets of eight, until I get to their two sets of 15. But I would rather that they get the good ones in the bank so the two sets of five, then the two sets of six, no one can take that away from them versus the person who goes and does two sets of 15 straight up, flares up the front of the hip, and then they have to rest for a while. So take your time with them, I reckon, is really good advice. Beautiful. And so once we've sort of worked through that phase, um, your correction of their form, they're showing really good strength increases, they've worked through some of those triple extension patterns and you're really happy with their movement. 
Uh, if we're talking getting back to sport, so I guess I'll pick out sort of two patients. One, um, when do we get this person back running if they're a running bass athlete? And to throw a tricky one at you, let's just say this athlete is a gymnast. They maybe need to do a little bit of running, but clearly they've got some fairly different sort of movement patterns there they need to be able to control. How do we uh, go about that? Uh, the running one, you know, I really enjoy treating that athlete because I think, you know, it covers so many sports. Um, I tend to find that if someone, the, the hard ones are the distance runners because they just want to go back to distance running. The problem with that, and particularly if they have this sort of presentation, where if you remember back to the objective, we said they lacked lateral pelvic stability and femoral rotational control. When they get to that fatigue level, you often find they have that flicky foot gait. And we all know what that is. You see this beautiful runner coming towards you and you think, gee, she's a great runner. And you see her half an hour later and her legs are going everywhere. That's just the recovery phase of someone dropping into poor lateral pelvic stability and femoral rotational control, trying to get that foot back to the impact position so they can get through. So I think the way to often counter that is to get them to do interval work. And they could still work really hard if they want to. But when I talk about interval work, for those who aren't familiar, I'm talking about, say, simply going to a footy oval and running around the boundary from one post to another. The advantage of it, I think they can keep a really good eye on their technique because they get a rest at the end of it. You know, they might run it post to post in 32 seconds and they can have 28 seconds rest and then come back the other way. The other advantage is I think they can focus on that triple extension that we said was so important. Now, you can build that and you can do quite a bit of volume, take your time, you can get longer intervals where they still keep that up and then they can go back into their distance. But I think that's a good one. Um, the gymnast. The gymnast is a really good question actually because oh, we like the term stay in your lane. I know nothing about gymnastics. I wouldn't profess to know anything about gymnastics. What I do know a bit about is lifting. So I would be very confident saying to this gymnast, if that's where she does in isolation, if she does lift to supplement her program, I'd be happy to give her some advice and talk to their S&C guys about what should they do in the lifting. And it doesn't mean when you speak to whoever their strength and conditioning coach is that you say, well, they can't do deadlifts and they can't do, you know, butt blaster or bridging type stuff. What you say is we're worried about terminal extension. Can we load up more on, say, the hip bridge or can we just do RDLs where she can control it more than, say, a normal trap bar deadlift or something? So I think it shows that you understand it a bit more and they get buy-in from that. What I do think is if you stay in your lane and you know nothing about gymnastics as I do is you ring the coach and you say, this is the scenario we're really keen to get her back in, but I don't know a lot about it. I'm worried about terminal extension. We've done some work to get her there. She's still got a bit. Is there anywhere in the program that she could have a chop out from that? And often what you find is that they're doing some unnecessary stuff um, that's a bit of time filler and they say, yeah, no problems, we can cut that out. I think it's important that you show you are interested in keeping her involved. Coaches get offended when you pull people out. Coaches love it when you put them in but you show a bit of care and try and modify things. So um, if you're a young physio, stay in your lane, speak to the right people and encourage them to be involved but make some small modifications and you'll probably win. Perfect way to finish, mate. Good bit of advice to uh, take away. But uh, we're going to leave it there. That's enough from uh, from us, I guess. Uh, once again, uh, you've just demonstrated that you have such a wealth of knowledge in this space. We've obviously had you talk at our groin events and our hamstring 
uh, course as well. So it's always a pleasure to have you. You've got a um, huge amount of knowledge to share. And I guess for those out there listening and keen to sort of tap into Andrew's knowledge a bit more, mate, you are, as mentioned in the intro, the director of the Hip and Groin Clinic and runs some fantastic courses Australia and abroad. Where can we find out what's going on there in 220? Yeah, we've uh, just launched our schedule. Um, Alicia and Mike do all the heavy lifting there, but um, thehipandgroinclinic.com is the website, so you can go on there and find some information regarding the courses that we've uh, scheduled for this year. So another exciting year ahead. Um, To Nick, thanks for having me. I really enjoy uh, doing this sort of stuff. It's good fun. I think the thing with this is, you know, we're not trying to solve the problems of the world here, but it's a really important thing that I think we need to bring to the attention. I think in these sort of hip problems, the female has probably not had as much attention. It's been directed at the FAI and so I'm really happy to share the dysplastic stuff. And to all those people who've given me input, particularly Alicia and Mike and then the surgeons that I mentioned from Melbourne Orthopaedic Group, I'm really thankful because these are combined ideas. I would never, ever stand up and say they're my own ideas. Um, And there's some fantastic people out there who have contributed to it. Perfect, mate. Well, I personally highly recommend your courses and take that on board where I think uh, hopefully everyone out there is a little bit more knowledgeable around hip dysplasia, a little bit more aware, and we can start to improve the management around that. So thanks again, Andrew, for your time. And uh, hopefully we hear from you again soon. 